I'd like for you to turn with me now to the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians chapter 1. Two weeks ago, we started on a journey, and we're really just beginning even this morning in the book of Philippians. We had a message that was basically an overview message. It was an overview of the entire letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi so many years ago. And what we looked at in that message was basically three points. We basically looked at the historical background of the city of Philippi. We looked at the historical background of the church of Philippi. By going into the book of Acts, in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, you'll find the record where the gospel came into, for the first time, the European continent. And it came through that little missionary team, Apostle Paul, Luke, Silas, Timothy. And we learned about the conversion of a businesswoman. Her name was Lydia of Thyatria. She was a seller of purple, and she was converted. The Lord opened her heart. And then we learned about a demon-possessed girl, a slave girl, who was freed from her demon possession. And I said that there's not an explicit statement that she was converted, but I would like to think that if she was delivered from her demon oppression, that God also granted her eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ as she heard the gospel as well. And then because she was uh, a great moneymaker for her owners, and now she didn't have the capacity to do the fortune-telling. Paul and Silas were cast into prison. And then we learn about the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And so you can see now that God has started a church. That's how he starts churches, by the way. He starts churches by saving souls. He, the gospel goes into a region. People hear the gospel. God opens eyes. They come to him in faith. And they're... They're saved, and when they're saved, there's, there's some people that are Christians now, and there's a church starting, and it starts around Lydia. We know Lydia and her family. We know the Philippian jailer and his family, and probably that slave girl now freed from her demon possession. So that was basically what we looked at. We looked at uh, some of the reasons that Paul wrote the letter. We know he wrote the letter because they had sent him a little gift, and they said, we love you, and he sends back uh, Aphroditus and says, here's a letter, I love you, and he, and he corresponds with the church at Philippi throughout his whole ministry, entire ministry. And so this is the letter. Some of the themes we looked at were the two major themes are the gospel of Christ and the community in Christ. We left off with that. The irrepressible joy that bubbles up and pops up throughout the book, we're going to be looking at that. So that's a little bit of a background of where we have already came from. And now this morning, I want to read two verses, and we'll begin in verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to you 
this morning we approach you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Not because we in and of ourselves deserve to be heard, but because we pray in his name and for his glory, we petition your throne of grace this morning to find help in time of need. And what we need is to feed from your table this morning, Lord. What we need is to drink from your fountain. What we need, O God, is you. And so we pray that you will draw near to us in this time, that you will walk among us and work among us in a special way today. May you be honored and glorified through the preaching of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Basically, what we have in these first two verses is a typical greeting. So you have a greeting of grace and peace from God. And in this, I see four things that I want to share with you this morning, four observations that we can make from these two verses. The first observation that I want to make with you is what we're going to call the Savior. The Savior. So if you're a note taker, that's what you write down, the Savior. Because three times in these two verses, you have the repetition of the name Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Look at it, if you will, in verse 1. The servants, first of all, Paul and Timothy, of Jesus Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the central theme that reappears throughout the letter and unites everything around the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul defines his role and that of Timothy and his co-workers of being servants of Christ. He describes the relationship of the church to one another. And the relationship of the church is one of living in Christ. And the blessing that he pronounces upon them is one of grace and peace that comes from one common source, and that is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this blessing that he pronounces upon them is in anticipation of the climactic verse that we find in chapter 2 and verse 11. If you want to look, you can, where it says, chapter 2, verse 11, where it says that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so everything about this man, the Apostle Paul, his his letters that he writes, um, his preaching, his life that he lives, is all what we would say is Christocentric. If you're egocentric, that means you're centered on yourself. If you're theocentric, it means you're centered on God. If you're Christocentric, you're centered on Christ. And everything about Paul, his message, his writing, his preaching, his life, is centered upon the person and the work of Christ. And so that's the first observation we can make, is that within two verses, he mentions the name Jesus Christ the Lord three times. The second observation in verse 1 is not only about the, 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 the Savior, but about the servants, the servants. Because after giving their names as the senders of the letter, Paul gives their titles, their titles. And he says that he and Timothy, and Timothy who he writes to in 1 Timothy 1 and 2 and calls him a son of the faith, they are servants of Christ Jesus. And this is significant because it's a little bit different than his normal, typical greeting. 
What Paul would do is very similar to what we would do if we write a letter. We would address the recipients of the letter. But unlike the way we would write a letter and put our name at the end, Paul, and, and in Greek letters, they would put their name at the beginning. So we have Paul and Timothy, and when he gives their titles, he says, we're servants. Servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's different because most of the time, Paul would refer to him as the apostle of Jesus Christ. But in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, you can jot this down. And also in Titus 1 and 1, he gives the title slave and apostle combined together to apply only the apostle Paul. But in this letter, he does something unusual, as I said, as he gives their title as being servants. And the literal definition would be slaves, slaves of Jesus Christ. And their work together was that of servants. The word there that is used in the Greek is doulos, doulos. And what it means is a bond servant. Do you know what a bond servant is? A bond servant is someone, you can see the picture in your mind, bound to their master, a bond servant, bound together. And what a bond servant was, very simply, was a servant who was willfully and joyfully committed and devoted and linked loyally to their master. There was nothing about a bond servant that was to be something of oppression. It's not a picture here. The picture of, that Paul wants you to have of him and Timothy as being servants or slaves of Christ is not as being under oppression, but joyfully submitting to the lordship and the leadership of the master, Jesus Christ. Because even in the Old Testament, they were given the provision through the law of Moses. If a slave was to be freed from his master, and he wanted to, he wanted to stay, he wanted to remain faithful and loyal to his master, his master would take him to the doorpost or the door itself, and he would bore through his ear an awl. And that would say, you're my slave now forever. And the, this would be something that was voluntarily done by the slave who had been set free. And that's what—that's the picture here in your mind. That's the picture that Paul wants. Paul and Timothy, hey, it's us writing to you, servants of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this morning. Do you see yourself, if you're a Christian, do you see yourself as a servant, as a servant of Christ? Let me ask you a, a, a little more specifically. Do you see yourself as a servant of your brothers and sisters at Burke Memorial? Are you a servant to one another? I'm reminded of what Jesus said, if you turn with me to the book of Mark, something that Jesus said to his disciples in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, if you'd look there. Jesus says something about this. That has really changed me in the last little bit. As a matter of fact, in the last couple of months since I went to the conference, the man, one of the pastors there, one of the preachers preached from this text. And I was very moved uh, as he as he expounded upon it. I'm not going to expound upon it, but in, in Mark chapter 9, I want to show you what he said. In verse 33, when he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? Jesus had taken his disciples to the side up there in uh, verse 31. 
And he began to tell and to teach his disciples about his death. He began to tell them and teach them that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to, be, uh, he was going to suffer and he was going to die and he was going to raise, rise again from the dead on the third day. And he began to teach them that. And as they began to walk away and they began to journey, it's interesting that they began to dispute and to argue among themselves. And Jesus asked them in verse 33, what, what, are you, what were you arguing about along the way? In verse 34, they held their peace. In other words, they wouldn't say anything. You know the reason they wouldn't say anything? It tells us. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. <laughs> Sounds like human beings, doesn't it? They disputed along the way who was going to be the greatest because they, had just, they just knew that Jesus was going to go into Jerusalem. He was going to reclaim the throne. He was going to reestablish the authority and the glory of Israel. And what is so striking and interesting is that he had just told them the very purpose that he was going to suffer and to die. And they began to argue among themselves who was going to be the greatest, who was going to sit beside of him. It's on the right hand and the left hand, James and John, asking that later on. And this is what Jesus said in verse 35. And he sat down, and he called the twelve. This is the patience of God. And he says unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be the last of all, and servant of all. So the goal, the goal that we should aim for as Christians is not to see who has the greatest status, Not to see who has the greatest accomplishments, but who is the servant of all. And so I ask you again this morning, as we think about the servants, very often we are preoccupied with who, aren't we? Who's coming? Who's going to be there? (laughs) I invite you to to our church. We're having a revival this week. Well, who's going to be there? Do I know him? Is he someone? Has he accomplished a lot of things? Are you going to have special singers there? (laughs) <laughs> well, I want to ask you, if, if we don't, are you going to come? Does it matter who it is to you? And we are. We're preoccupied with the who's who. But Jesus said, if you will be the greatest, you must be the servant of all. Now, I ask you this morning, are you a servant? If you're a servant of Christ Jesus, how do you do that? The way that you serve Christ is by serving one another. The way that you serve Jesus is by serving one another. Paul and Timothy looked at themselves as joyfully devoted to God, joyfully and willingly devoted and connected and committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. So that's an important distinction that they made. They're servants of who? Of Jesus Christ. They weren't necessarily the slaves of the church or the servants of the church, but they were servants of Christ. And so although they committed themselves as servants to the church and to the people of God and to the people who were lost in the world, they devoted themselves and their lives completely to that effort of serving other people, but their master was only Jesus Christ. And there's a distinction there that needs to be made in your life and my life. I'm a servant of this church, but my master is Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Think about this. If you turn over with me to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 9, I'll show you something the Apostle Paul said about himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, just a couple of verses here. 
We were almost there. We were in chapter 10 last week as we had our communion. And in chapter 9, I just want to read a couple verses. Verse 19. Verse 19. Paul says, For though I be free from all men, so I'm not bound to any person, Paul says, yet (laughs) have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And then verse 23 tells us what his whole life is about. And this I do for what? For the gospel's sake. And so I ask you again, are you a servant? Are you a servant? The way you serve Christ is to serve one another. So we have the Savior, and we've looked at the servant. Now let's look at the third observation from Philippians 1 and 2, and that is the saints. The saints. Because in verse 1, we see who it's addressed to, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So the word saints here is the Greek word hagios, and it means holy ones. Holy ones. These are those people that are dedicated and consecrated to God. Saints are simply people who have been separated by God for His purpose and for His pleasure. Separated by God to God to be holy and pure. Separated from sin and separated to God for His service, for His glory, and for their gratification. Because to be a saint is to be a Christian. All Christians are saints. Saints are not, as some people would have you to think, are not super Christians. They're not Christians who have attained through certain acts of piety or goodwill that they have attained sainthood. No, saints are simply people who are participants, partakers in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. If you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, then you are a saint. You're a saint. And that's who it's addressed to. To all the saints, partakers of the redemptive work of Christ through His death and burial and resurrection. So biblically, the term never applies to an elite group of Christians who have gained a higher place than others. They're simply those who have been given a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. We call it an alien righteousness because it's foreign to us. The righteousness that you have. Let me ask you this. What merit do you stand before God today? Very, very important question. You know what merit is, right? Merit means something that you've earned. Something you deserve. On what basis do you stand before God? Only one way. We're going to find that out in, in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, Not having a, the righteousness of my own self, a righteousness of the law, the goodness that of, of my life, but uh, the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a saint. A saint. Take you back to 1 Corinthians again and show you what I mean. I think this one clears it up for me. There's all kinds of verses. But this one clears it up. If you think that a saint is not the average, ordinary stuff of Christianity, this verse will clear it up for you really fast. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. Paul writing again. And here's who he's writing to under the church of God, which is at Corinth. <laughs> and you need to know a little bit about, about the church at Corinth. 
to get this, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So here he simply says that everyone who is set apart, that's what sanctified means, everyone that is set apart and called to be a saint, who calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and His, that's who a saint is. So that clears it up for me because if you know anything about the church at Corinth, we know two things about them. Number one, they had a lot of spiritual gifts. They were a very spiritually gifted people. However, they also, the second thing we know about Corinth is they also had a lot of immorality in their congregation. They had a lot of sin in their congregation. And Paul writes to them quite bluntly at times, telling them to deal with certain situations and circumstances of immorality within the church. (laughs) But yet he calls them all saints. So you have the Savior, you have the servants, and you have the saints. So I could ask you this morning, are you a saint by being called and set apart in Christ? Are you a saint? And fourthly and finally in verse 2, we find the salutation. The salutation. It's simply this, grace be unto you, verse 2, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, wait a minute. I realize my error here. I have overlooked something. He also writes something. He does something different in verse 1 that he doesn't do. I, need, I don't need to skip over it. He mentions the bishops and the deacons. wonder why he did that. And I'd have to speculate as to why he did that. But he mentions the word there. The Greek word for the first one, the bishop, is episkopos. And that is an overseer. There's other names for the same office in the New Testament. Those titles, those names are pastors, elders, bishops, and overseers. All of those names are for the same office. He mentions them. So he says, to all the saints who are in Christ with the episcopos, with those overseers, pastors, elders, and the deacons. Diakonos is the word, and it simply means a servant or a minister. So he mentions those two offices and those leadership. And the interesting thing to point out is that what you have there is the threefold Uh, governance structure of every New Testament church. In every New Testament church, local churches, you have a threefold governance structure. You don't see it as often today, and maybe we should. But you have elders, and it's always plural. It's not like our church today where you have one pastor. In every instance that you read... Paul addresses a singular church, which means it's a local church that he's writing to, and he, when he addresses the leadership, it's always plural. So you have elders, a group of men who get their spiritual uh, character qualities from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and you have a plurality also of deacons who are ministers and servants who carry out a variety of necessary tasks among the congregation. So you think about why did he address them differently here? Why did he mention the fact that he was a servant, didn't mention that he was apostle, and then he mentions with the elders and deacons? I think it could be at least in part because as he deals with the issues of the church that we looked at two weeks ago, he would add a little apostolic weightiness to 
probing the church to deal with the issues. We know there were disunity in the church. We know that there was some suffering. We know that there were some opponents that were uh, without and within. And so they had these things they needed to deal with. He adds a little weightiness to it and encourages that unity, I believe, by mentioning those two offices. So now we come to verse 2 in the salutation, which is simply grace and peace. Grace and peace. Paul uh, takes the, uh, the, the typical Greek greeting of a letter would be to say grace unto you. And Paul takes that. He also takes the Jewish greeting, which would be shalom, peace, and he adds them together. And every one of Paul's letters starts with that salutation. Grace and peace. And at the end of his letter, grace be with you. And so in this one little phrase, what we find is an, is an expression of a condensed form of the essence of Paul's theology. His message is one of grace. His message is one of peace. So let's think about these terms individually. Grace. What is grace? <laughs> you know, I've, I preach uh, two times most every Sunday, teach on Wednesday nights, have for some time now. And I I preach in some way or another, grace is going to come out because everything comes from grace, the grace of God. And we we talk about it all the time, and yet I ask people, and I can ask people out on the street, and, and so many people, they don't know what grace is. And I wonder why that is. Grace is God's initiative to do something that you don't deserve. Grace means that the air that you breathe, the blood pumping through your body, the water that you drink, the clothes that you have on, the food that you eat, the family that you enjoy, the job that you work, everything that you know, everything that you see, everything that you cannot see is granted and given by Almighty God Himself. Without Him, we can do nothing. We can't take a breath. We can't take a step. We can't make a move without God. It's all by God's grace. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, saving work of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what that brings is peace. It's what that brings. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace means that God has acted and worked in history outside of you before you were ever born. He done something for you and He is acted outside of you by His own free, His own sovereign will and initiative to open your blinded eyes so that you could see by causing you to hear the gospel. He sends the preachers. He sends the Christians. He sends the Spirit to convict. He draws you to Himself. This is grace. And grace is what humbles you. And the opposite of grace is thinking you deserve it, and that's what exalts you. And so many people today feel like God is just really lucky to have them. When it is you and I who are truly blessed that we can know the God of heaven. And that brings peace. 
harmonious relationships with God and harmonious relationships with each other. And that's the greeting, grace and peace. The opening theme of grace is heard again in chapter 4, if you look at it. I mentioned it earlier. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And the peace comes up again. This theme of peace comes up again in chapter 4. As Paul says in the letter, verse 7, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I think he preaches Jesus, doesn't he? And then in verse 9, Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of what? Peace shall be with you. God is at work, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. God is at work both to will and to work for His good pleasure in you, and that's grace. Brings you to peace with God, who is the God of peace, so that you can have peace with one another. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you recently or maybe even today begun to see the exceeding sinfulness of your own heart in the sight of God? Have you maybe recently or even today begun to understand the grace of God in sending His Son, His only begotten Son, to suffer and bleed and die? And why did He do that? He did that so that He could bring you to Himself in peaceful relationship so that you could be forgiven of your sins, so that you could be granted eternal life, a relationship with God forever. Are you in Christ or are you out? If you're in Christ, then all of the benefits, all of the blessings, all of the wonderful, wonderful gifts of God are yours because you're in Christ. But if you're out, if you're outside of Christ, You're outside of the ark of safety. You're outside of forgiveness. You're outside of the gift of eternal life. Jesus Christ is the provision for our sins. He is the one that we look to this morning. I don't know who wrote this, but I want to read it to you as we close. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. The outside the inside, on which side are you? Are you in? If you're not, I invite you to come. Let's pray. Father, as we bow our heads in your presence, we thank you for the work of grace, the work of mercy, to bring us to peace. Peace with you, and peace with each other. If there's one here today who does not know you as Savior, as Lord, and treasure of their heart, I ask you today, have mercy upon them. Graciously open their eyes to see. Open their ears to hear and their heart to have the softness to receive the truth of the gospel today. Help us as a church, O Lord, to realize our great responsibility 
our great responsibility, our great privilege that we have to be called saints. Those who have been consecrated as holy ones, set apart for you and to you forever. Help us to serve you, Lord Jesus, by serving each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.